Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And this week we will be speaking with Nate Salpeter and Shira Jacobson. They are both from a place called Sweet Farm, which is an animal sanctuary that is very near where we live in Western New York. And so we did this interview in person. It was so much fun. They call it a climate sanctuary, which we'll talk to yeah. them about. They don't call it an animal yeah. sanctuary. Though, it, you know, there's animals and it's a sanctuary, but it's a climate sanctuary. Well, they, they're trying to take a broad view of various things. So it's really interesting. They're really, really smart. We got to see some really lovely animals. We got to pick some garlic. It was hard because we didn't know what was what. We went to their garden area and and they had all these things growing. And we finally found a label that said garlic. So we knew that was the garlic. Um, <laughs> That's <laughs> pathetic. To, they're doing this special work, like different than, than a lot of other people. And not only saving these just adorable, beautiful animals, but developing technology that is going to help change the food system. Yeah. For climate change and for the animals and for everything. So I loved this visit. Yeah, I loved it too. I'm so excited that we're near them. And I think we talked about this right afterwards, but Nate is also a co-owner of the Penyan Diner. I knew you were going to bring that up. That was your favorite part of the day. My fa- That was my favorite part of my year. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, it's, we've already talked about this and it's like kind of awful for other people to hear you talk about like restaurants that they haven't gone to. So I guess they just have to go, but it's like just epic. And there's a whole vegan menu. You could get a vegan version of basically anything. Well, diner food. diner food, diner food, diner food. I already said I want to spend my birthday there. That's like not for months, but I already have it planned. Yeah, I would I like to go. go back there sooner than your birthday, to tell you the truth. Okay. So next time next time you all are in Penyan, New York, I'm sure yeah. it happens a lot, drop into the diner. So, yes, I'm excited about this interview. And by the way, just real quick, we also spoke recently about how I was hosting Connections, the talk show at WXXI, and I did a show on cultivated meat, and Nate came in. And I do encourage people to listen to that because it is a very different interview than this one. And so if you like Nate on this, which you will love Nate on this, you have to then go listen to that. So you have your homework. And they love you on this too, but you you are a little different on Connections than you are in here because you're not quite as outspoken. Right, right. I uh, I have to be a bit more of You're a more journalist. The host. Yeah, but yes. I, I'm a curator. You know what I mean? I curate the topics. I curate the panels. So yeah, it's, it's great. Fun. And so that was a great episode. And I learned a lot listening to it. Me too. I learned so much. I selfishly choose most of the interviews I do just because I want to learn from them. People are like, wow, how do you curate so many people who, and I'm like, it's just selfishness, really. So anyway. It was also about plant-based and, and about... um what we're going to be eating uh, in 2040. Yeah. And the college here, Rochester, what is it called? RIT. <laughs> RIT. I always forget the name. Yeah. I always want it to be Rochester Polytechnic Institute. Don't tell anybody I said that. All right. Uh, that's you just Rensselaer said it on Polytechnic air. Institute is in, is in Troy, New York. And Rochester, all right. This is not interesting. Yeah. All right. Not at all. I just wanted to say about them that they're they're taking their um cafeteria half plant-based. And the guy from there was just wonderful. He was really, really a dynamic interview. So I love that. Yeah, me too. So we're back from New York City. We were there last week when we were recording this segment. We had just gotten there and it was uh, it was a lovely trip. We saw 2.5 Broadway shows. <laughs> we we were going to see three, but we like, you know, we're too cranky around bad theaters. So we left one show in the middle, which, you know, was terrible. Really bad. What was the name of it again? It's called the, the cottage. cottage. Yeah, but I honestly, did. I wouldn't be I, surprised if it's closed already. Right, and the other two shows were great. Kimberly Akimbo, which, by the way, has a very small cast, and one of the characters is vegan, and it wasn't the butt of a joke or anything. No, in fact, there was a fun moment when, like, this one kid in the show likes to switch around the letters of people's names. That's how. He, that's why it's called Kimberly Akimbo because uh, it's her name. You know with the letters switched around and he is doing that for his friends. And one of them is like uh boycott bacon or something. It's that's not it, but it's something like boycott bacon. And she said, Oh, that's perfect. Cause I'm vegan. And it got like a big laugh. So 
I was very excited. Well, aside from that one mention, it was also really, really good. Highly recommend it. Yeah. And then we also saw Some Like It Hot, which was also really, really good. Very good indeed. Lots of great tap dancing. Speaking of tap dancing, I took a tap, you know, I'm a tap dancer and as a hobbyist, like big time, just so that we're clear. And I took a class at Steps on Broadway and which it's called Steps on Broadway and it's on the Upper West Side. It's a very iconic dance school. I've, I used to go there for tap classes and whatnot. It was the hardest class I've ever taken. Everyone was 20 years younger than me and on Broadway. That was foolish. I know, but let me just say the only reason I stayed in the class is because I have a sense of humor. And I was like, I'm going to model a good sense of humor for these youngsters. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to give them self-confidence by standing next to me. Like, can I just say- That was a very noble, noble theory for why to stay, yeah. I also like they were doing like one one footed wings just so that, you know, I'm, I, if you don't know, if you know, you know, I'm not going to go on about that. But like, no, I can't do that anyway. So it was a really great time. Happy to be back. The weather is absolutely gorgeous right now here in Rochester. Everywhere else, it's like burning. My best friend Erica sent me an article this morning. Let me pull that up. Yeah, here it is. It's from CNN and and it's called Massive Fire Burning in California and Nevada is Spawning Dangerous Fire Worlds. What are fire worlds? Worlds, W-H-I-R-L-S, fire worlds. Like it's like- Oh, like tornadoes? Yeah, a fire. God. Yeah. I don't, you know, I didn't even know about this fire. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay, well- Oh my God. That's because the it, everything is so bad. It's hard to keep up. It's hard to keep up with all of the fire. Yeah. So let's talk about something good. Let's talk about... I'm sorry if you're one of those people who's near fire or this suffocating heat. I mean, we had the smoke a while back, but but not that bad. So we have been lucky so far. But climate is bad for everybody. This is why the New York Times wrote this amazing story that seems to be everywhere that's called save the planet, put down that hamburger. And it says researchers examined the diets of more than 55,000 people and found that vegans are responsible for, wait for it, 75% less in greenhouse gases than meat eaters. And this also became like a meme that was going around or like not a meme, but like a, you know, a, a, a title slide or whatever the hell it's called, where that's the information that was on it. Like you didn't have to read the article to get to the point, which is in the title. And it was just very exciting that it it went viral to such an extent that they published a complimentary story that went with it later in the week, which I know that newspapers and magazines and outlets do when something is really becoming popular so clearly that that article did really well because it did, it did another article. It's called What's a Plant-Based Diet? Here's what you need to know to eat less meat. And I read this in, from my marketing brain and I was like, this is all SEO. I mean, the subheads are what is a plant-based diet? Are plant-based and vegan diets better for you? Do I have to give up animal products entirely to follow? You know, it goes on and on. And I think it's really fascinating that the SEO people at the New York Times, and of course, I'm guessing that this is the case. Uh, this is just my very strong suspicion. I think it's really fascinating that they that they were like, "Oh, there is a value in us, you know, creating an SEO article about plant based diets." So I think that there is actually a lot of potential for people to go vegan, or uh, you know hopefully at least a whole lot more vegan, but like go vegan already for fuck's sake from all of this coverage that is coming out related to climate since climate is definitely the top news story all the time in some capacity or another. People don't seem to care about animals. And one of the things that's great about this study, which is a really good study, I mean, they they make the point that, you know, this industry is always bullshitting about some study that they have or whatever, but this is a serious study. Like it drew from actual diets, it was peer-reviewed, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the points they make is that, that, yeah, going vegan is a lot better than cutting it in half. Cutting your meat in half is really, really good. And they encourage people to do that. If meat eaters in the UK, this is a UK study, who consume more than three and a half ounces of meat a day, which is like the size of a one quarter pounder. It's a really 
small amount, cut their intake to less than 1.7 ounces a day, it would be the equivalent of taking 8 million cars off the road. Like unbelievable. And that's not even cutting it out completely. But the study does make clear that going vegan is a gazillion times better than cutting down. 22 and a half pounds of carbon a day for regular meat eaters or people who ate more than three and a half ounces. And most people eat a lot more than that. And then 11.8 for for people who are eating less meat and then 5.4 for vegans. I mean, unbelievable difference. And this is this is like serious information. Yeah, seriously. Wow. So so while we're wrapping our heads around that, it's always good to touch base on strategy. And I know that this topic is something we have talked about umpteenth times in the history of our hen house. But Plant Based News published an article about a study that found that meat eaters were, quote, significantly less likely to choose plant based meals if they were labeled as vegan. And the study is called The Negative Impact of Vegetarian and Vegan Labels, and it was conducted at MIT. And I mean, that's, you know, that's a pretty big study. And obviously, it's just new information for us. And this this is not something that is terribly surprising to me. In fact, it reminds me of what we what you said relating to that cultivated meat episode of Connections that I mentioned earlier, which was that like we asked a question that was, do you think that we shouldn't like ever talk about cultivated meat from a vegan lens? Because it's, you know, it's, I don't even care. I don't want to get into whether it's vegan. It's not vegan because it's meat, but like, blah, blah, blah. I don't care. The, The point is that if people think oh, well, it's not vegan or vegetarian, then they might be much more likely to eat yeah. it. And that, that yeah. gives me hope, honestly. Well, it makes me hate people even more, but it does give me hope. <laughs> I, th- I think it has a lot to do with, you know, once you recognize that it's for the animals and once you recognize or once you call yourself vegan, that, like then there are no exceptions. Like that's a really hard thing for people to do thinking that means like, okay, I can never eat any of it. But once you recognize it's for climate, well, you know, you can do a little here and a little there and it's not that much worse than doing none. I think the reason it's bad for marketing to call the food vegan is because I understand this. People look at it and think that's for vegans. I'm not vegan. So why would I eat that? Right. It's just how people's brains work. Yeah. Totes. But we'll, for people who want to read this, we'll link to it. We'll link to all of it uh, because it's like, yeah, it's good stuff. It's really good stuff. I think we should get to our interview today because I'm like, this is really special. I love being able to do these interviews in person, especially when you're in a place as magical as a sanctuary. Nate Sopiter, who holds a PhD in engineering, is along with Anna Sweet, a co-founder of Sweet Farm, which is a place of education, inspiration, and innovation through farm animal rescue, regenerative agriculture, and technology initiatives to scale accessible change in the food and climate systems globally. Nate is also an investor in the alternative protein, agriculture, technology, and sustainability sectors, and a general partner at Snowcap, an emerging climate innovation fund that aims to enable sector shifts and unlock the potential for previously unimaginable companies to exist. Shira Jacobson is a marketing and social media specialist and the development and communications manager at Sweet Farm, where she works to make the world a kinder, more sustainable place for all. They will both be joining us right after this. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our henhouse will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Welcome to our hen house, Nate and Shira. 
Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Excited to be here. We're actually the ones excited to be here, just so that we can be clear on that. Yeah, we hardly ever get to do an interview in person, and we really never get to do an interview in person at a brand new sanctuary. Well, not brand new, but brand new to us sanctuary and pretty new to everybody. I can't even tell you how excited I am about the work that you're doing here. I want to hear all about it because there's so many different things. I mentioned to a friend just the other day that I was doing an interview with someone who was tackling climate, the environment, animal welfare, technology, education, and sustainable agriculture. And they said, what? (laughs) Isn't that kind of a lot? But they're kind of all the same thing for you, aren't they? They absolutely are. As you start to look at these giant global challenges and how they're all interconnected, you realize that this is just one single system. Many aspects of it are, are certainly broken, but isolating them and siloing the challenges and trying to tackle those in absence of any of the other connected pieces is kind of, uh, I think, like missing it, missing it a little bit. I mean, it's important to have those, you know, focused efforts, but someone needs to kind of collect those pieces uh, and take that systems point of view as well. It's really about complementing the work of a lot of folks. And we do that under this banner of uh, a climate sanctuary. Yeah. What do you mean when you, when you call it a climate sanctuary? So when you think about the biggest challenges in the world, right? It's food resiliency, it's carbon emissions, it's changing weather patterns, it's impacts on wildlife due to uh, wildfires and floods, as well as other contributing factors to that, which obviously we talk a lot about animal agriculture. You cover that a lot on this podcast and for good reason. When you look at all of these challenges and these connected pieces, they all collectively fall under this aspect of climate. Now, there's a lot of ways of looking at it. Um, we are definitely, you know, it starts first and foremost with the animals, but we wanted something that really widened the net and, and created a bigger tent to bring people in to discuss and have these conversations. And a, a lot of the work you do, oh, sorry, Sherry, did you want to add to that? Oh, no, I, I was just going to say that part of our mission is to create a more sustainable and compassionate planet. And the animals are a huge part of that. However, everything is a part of that. The plants, the people, the planet, and the animals. And we really try to focus on every living thing. And to that end, a lot of the work you are doing seems very tech-centric and cutting edge and systemic. And yet you've chosen to found I don't know, perhaps the most hands-on, labor-intensive, individual, animal-focused type of venture, a sanctuary. So do these serve each other? They do in a number of ways. So I'll give you, I like answering with anecdotes, you know, past experiences, if that's if that's helpful here. So when we first started Sweet Farm, uh, it really began as an animal sanctuary, and we were growing some fruits and vegetables for our friends and neighbors. But very quickly, that expanded into them bringing their friends, us doing some coordinated tours. Then our agriculture program expanded into a CSA, a community-supported agriculture program, feeding families in the area. And what we realized very early on is you can't talk about the food system without taking that systems approach. As that continued to grow, what naturally occurred, it being in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, uh, was some companies started reaching out saying, hey, you know, where down the street is, y'all are thinking about things in a, a little bit of a different way. You have a bit of technical background and, and a business kind of mindset in terms of like, how do you approach the problems? We'd love to do a project. We'd love to test it a new technology out on the farm. Can we do that? And we started assessing these opportunities and we said, hey, can we jump in and put a bit of focused effort very quickly and make a profound impact with that effort? So to your point, your question around, you know, there's a very uh, labor intensive undertaking, a sanctuary, that is 100% accurate. The thing that we always focus on is how can we maximize the way that every hour of our day is spent? How can we maximize the output of impact? So the tech program really, really complements the work of the other programs, the education program and in inspiring people to take that education into action. But the innovation piece is really how we scale impact globally by helping people make their own impact inherently through their daily choices. They might not even know they're making an impact, but 
the products that they know and love are shifting plant-based because they can now sub in some of these new products. So Sweet Farm focuses on a lot on helping those companies get their foot in the door, get their first technologies tested, Mm -hmm. go raise the capital they need to actually scale their products and solutions. And then on the other side of the fence, we can help educate individuals as well on, you know, what's coming through the pipeline in this manner. And how do your programs differ from those at other farmed animal sanctuaries? I do not know of any other sanctuary that is running a technology program. It is kind of in our wheelhouse. So uh, we like to complement the work of others. Uh, We think many different approaches to tackling these challenges is critical. If there's a sanctuary that the founder is a musician, like use music to bring people in. If you are a great storyteller or writer, use those skills to incorporate it. In our case, we happen to be tech-centric. So we incorporate that into our programs. I don't know of any others doing that or the fruits and veggies program. But by the time we left California, we were feeding around 50, 60 families a week through our CSA program and doing a lot of donations into the community. Of course, we're in our first year here. So maybe after this, we'll go take a walk down through the gardens and check those out. But those different pieces, it just it kind of falls into how we view, you know, the white space within the movement. Yeah, there's still a lot of white space for us to cover here, because I want to talk both about your regenerative agriculture program and about the tech program. So let's start with the agriculture. Regenerative agriculture, it's become kind of suspect amongst animal advocates because the industry has tried to co-opt that term. And it seems to frequently refer to greenwashing efforts and, you know, putting cows on the land and then taking them off and whatever. So let's define that term. Talk about what you mean by regenerative agriculture and and how it's going to serve the animals and the planet. Yeah, absolutely. So regenerative, when folks use the term regenerative, and I will preface this with there is an active movement in California to define the term legally, uh, which I think will help across the board. However, to date, regenerative has primarily meant you are using techniques and methods that regenerates the soil. So uh, if you look at an individual tomato plant, for instance, you can define the boundary around that tomato plant on a per plant basis. Mm -hmm. There's nutrients coming out of the soil, it's producing a tomato, and then a hand reaches in, picks that tomato, and the tomato disappears. How's the soil continuing its fertility? So in some cases, it's, well, synthetic fertilizers people are putting in there or herbicides to tackle pest control. That kind of thing, that's more traditional agriculture. You start expanding the window just a little bit. You now can start incorporating things like intercropping and cover cropping. So intercropping being companion planting, you know, with plants that are co-beneficial to one another. So one drives away certain types of insects and those insects are no longer sort of renegades. They can now work on behalf of the ecosystem. And you're basically fostering this ecosystem to continue to build fertility in the soil and, and continue to put carbon mass into the soil. And it's all about just building it back up instead of just stripping everything away uh, until you're left with nothing but dirt. It's about changing. Um, I'm kind of like repeating myself because it is such a, it is an iterative process. So like even my description, I recognize is a little bit iterative. Because that's exactly what the soil is doing. You want to re- keep repeating and adding back and getting it to where it was and taking out and putting back in. But how do we do that without animal? You know, when you try to be vegan and you're organic, it's a little depressing to think of how much manure you're actually contributing to the world yeah. in a sort of way. Yeah, absolutely. So our compost program in California, we spent many years working on it. The animals are pooping here, right? They're not here to poop. I mean, that's just a natural outcome. I'm going to make this the audiogram that (laughs) advertises this episode. (laughs) But the reality is they do it. And if composted properly, we can reduce the amount of emissions that are generated from their poop, right? We don't want to load it up in a trailer and haul it off to a landfill or something like that. That seems counterproductive to what the goal is. And uh, when we look at the way Sweet Farm is growing 
produce, right? Using our compost. And of course, we're building up our compost program here again. We have to start over a little bit. It is important to recognize that veganism, we view it as it's a tool. It's not a dogma. We look at okay, what are the different elements at play in this very complex system and what can we continually do to do better? And in this case, we have poop. We don't want to expand our footprint and we're going to use it on the property. That's a whole lot different than organic agriculture at scale where bone meal, blood meal, feather meal, manure is constantly used out in the field. Certainly different. So I do want to define like while while we're making use of it here on the property, that is not the function. Right. But do you think we'll get to the point, I mean, that we can have veganic agriculture where people just aren't using animal inputs at all? Or, I mean, you're using it because it's there. Yes, yeah, certainly. But can you envision a world where, I mean, I know the worlds I envision are very far from the way the world is now. But, you know, sometimes you got to do that. You got to build the vision in order to get there. Certainly. You have a lot of approaches that are not new. You have green manures, cover crops, uh, which are nitrogen fixing. You can utilize other types of crops for your integrated pest management. So you can start to mitigate pouring tons of insecticides on the property. There's even new technologies that are tackling things like exhaust gases from natural gas or coal-fired power plants that can actually capture CO2 and then use that to produce carbonates, which are very beneficial in agriculture as well. So like these things start to play with one another. And Sweet Farm has done field trials in the past with companies doing things even as wild as taking human biomass from the wastewater treatment system and upcycling that into biochars. Yeah, no, this is like, I guess I'm a very weird person, but I'm so so excited. If there's one thing this world is more than full of, it's human poop. (laughs) While we were talking about how everything we do kind of ties together. That is exactly one area where our technology program really does come into play. You know, is there a future uh, with agriculture without using anything from animals? Right, exactly. Well, that's what people and startups and companies are out there trying to figure out. And we are trying to help them do that. So that is a huge part of our technology program, bringing in these entrepreneurs, these individuals, these startups, helping them discover what else we can do, what they can innovate to make that a reality. I do have like one kind of more general question before we get to that, because I do want to get into specifics. But a lot of ag talk, people talk about it as if it's a choice between the way we have it now, huge, huge agriculture, both plant and of course, the thing we're most concerned about factory farms, full of animals. That's a way to feed the world. That's what they talk about all the time. We're feeding the world or else going back to some bucolic past, which probably never existed the way people think of it. And, you know, like the farm to table movement and all of that. Sorry if you're into the farm to table movement, but it kind of drives me crazy that that's obviously not going to happen. We're not going to have a farm to table world for our billions and billions of people. So what does the future of ag look like in your best guess of the, the best way to do this using all this tech, not the specifics we can get into the specifics, but using all this tech to actually grow a really lot of food for a really lot of people. Yeah. I love the way you framed up that question because it it really drives home our focus around how do we improve the way that the other 95% of the planet feeds themselves, right? If we can get the 95% of the planet to even take a decent sized step forward, by the numbers, that is a massive, massive win. We always applaud the individual going from zero to 100 and making that giant leap. But in a lot of cases, going to the kind of, I'll call it, uh, you use much better terms than I did, I'll call it crunchy granola agriculture, which Sweet Farm does, right? We are growing, we're not spraying. Part of our program, yes, does grow food that way. However, we've done field trials for companies that are creating plants that are biosensors. So you ask, what does the future of food look like? Future of agriculture to feed the billions and in a better way. We did the first two years of field trials for a company that is actually creating essentially canaries in the coal mine for pests and diseases and water stress and nutrient stress in a way that within a matter of hours, you can actually detect that there's an issue as opposed to it taking two weeks or so for a farmer to see it with their own eyes. So what does that mean? It means uh, a farmer can now tackle a tiny patch of fungus in their field of thousands and thousands of acres 
quickly before it has a chance so, to so spread. The are kind of say, out there saying, hey, we need some help over here. Yeah. That's crazy. It, exactly. So it's a little bit different, right? Yes, that company, it is a GMO and I, and I recognize that. But they're also creating plants that are they themselves are the indicators. It doesn't have to be everything, right? It could just be non-fruiting plants within the field. I don't have some like GMOs are terrible. Like there might need to be some more research done on whether some are or some aren't. But you know, if we're going to save the world, we have to use technology and GMOs seem to have been an important part of that. There's a lot of tools in the tool chest and in most technologies can be opted for good or bad. I mean, I think that's an important thing to remember. And GMOs in particular get a bad rap because at a certain point in history, it was certainly the latter. They were co-opted in not the most farmer-friendly way. And But I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And you mentioned the field work that you did. Was that in California? Yeah, that was in California. Uh, the company is called Interplant. And John Deere actually just led their latest round of okay, so funding. It is continuing. Wow. Yep. Okay, so let's let's talk about Sweet Farm in particular. What are the programs at Sweet Farm that are focused on promoting sustainable, regenerative, veganic agriculture? I'll let Nate chime in after this, but I will say all of our programs really, like we mentioned, are connected. We rarely talk about one without talking about the other. So some of our main programs do include our farm animal welfare and rescue and, and rehabilitation. We have over a, a hundred rescued farm animals here on Sweet Pharma living out their lives. But then that goes hand in hand with our education around our plant-based regenerative agriculture, where we do have our field down there, where we're growing a lot of fruits, vegetables, flowers. And then along with our education program, we bring people in. We host numerous events here, both on the farm and virtually. And then kind of our third is that innovative technology program. So to the question around how do we promote the regenerative ag piece? So in California, it was very straightforward. We had 60 families a week coming through, picking produce. Here, that ag program is continuing to grow. Uh, we are just in our first year of field trials here. But what Shira mentioned, that the programs go hand in hand, I think is very important. So with our tech program, that in large part relies on a functional ag program in order to be able to leverage. So with, say, a company that is taking flue gas from carbon emitting industry and turning that into humates or carbonates for uh, soil amendments, having a functional ag program and having the wherewithal to connect the dots and go and co-write a grant application with a tech company, with a power plant and be able to say, hey, we are farmers. We do have our hands in the soil. It may not be the biggest farm, but being able to connect those dots and leverage those outputs in our fields is extremely beneficial to the scaling of these practices because there's one thing that's for sure. It's farmers trust and respect other farmers, generally speaking. It's not someone who's just sitting in an office space downtown saying, you know, you really ought to do better, Mr. Farmer or Mrs. Farmer. It's really about like, no, we're out there trying it. We're seeing good progress. We think you might have success doing some of these things as well. There's a lot of value in that. And I have some really extreme examples of that from a California. I'll just pick one. It, we had five companies we were working with. They happened to be raising funding rounds uh, in their company's growth. And we had 40 different investors to the farm to meet these entrepreneurs. And those investors happened to be all from Brazil. We had the top investor from one of the largest meat producing companies in the world there. We had some of the largest plant-based agriculture companies in the world. And I remember the smallest farmer that happened to be there had a farm around 50,000 acres. The largest farm represented there was around 2 million acres. So what they told us, we only actively grew on about two or three acres. They themselves said, we know this is a small plot, but the fact that you're actually doing it, the fact that you're actually attempting to understand through practice as opposed to through a book or a blog means an incredible amount to them. So that's how I view what we're doing, how it actually scales and drives impact. Like taking it out of the laboratory and turning the farm itself into the laboratory. Exactly. Yeah. Are you doing that here yet or is this still a yeah. work in progress? Yeah. This past year, we grew our first crops last year. This year, things are 
in the garden, they're coming out. Onions aren't yet ready. The garlic is almost ready. But yes, we're absolutely growing produce here on the farm. So doing these field trials with various companies and trying out new methods. Yes. Uh, You've started that kind of work here? Yeah. So we do have a lot of different companies in the pipeline, ranging from companies that are addressing frost protection. And there's even a lot of local biochar companies. Uh, interestingly, we did a lot of work with biochar. I've never heard of biochar before and now I'm super excited about yeah. it. Yeah. We weren't sure how the tech program was going to kind of shape up yeah. here. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and what we've found is even more companies are interested in working with us now that we're here in the Bay Area. It, it's kind of tough to do ag tech field trials when there's a hundred year drought or multi-century drought in effect or flooding when it's not in drought. So it becomes a lot more approachable when we have consistent access to water. I feel like adding that we drove here in our EV and Moore was talking about the regenerative braking. And she was like, look, we have more miles now than when we left because we have the regenerative braking. I just feel like bringing that up. It's kind of outside of, but we're talking about regenerative agriculture and just the idea of regenerative everything is kind of intriguing me a lot. And it's also intriguing me that we're here in person in the Finger Lakes and we all put together that we're all recent arrivals in Western New York. We were chatting about that. Actually, I lived in Santa Cruz when you were in Half Moon Bay. We bonded over the very fancy Taco Bell. So tell us about that move from California to the Finger Lakes. Like, how did you pull that off? That must have been one of the points where it became particularly difficult to do what you do, considering you have all these animals. One thing that's extremely important to acknowledge here is Shira and I may be the ones talking into the microphone, but it is only backed up by an incredible team, an incredible team here in New York, also an incredible team in California, which they ended up staying there, right? A lot of them had family and partners tied to the Bay Area. But a move like that does not happen with a single person. It doesn't even happen with 50 people. It was an incredible number of volunteers, incredible number of supporters. Sweet Farm is a donor-supported organization. The cost of the move was quite expensive. It took about, let's see, it was four 18-wheelers to move everything. So two of them were with the animals. They were in big box stalls, very comfortable. Everyone arrived safely in good health, no injuries along the way. But then the equipment, right? It took easily six months of planning just to get everything in order, all the health checks. You know, at the time, bird flu was a big thing. So we had to test every single bird. So those kind of things, you know, happened with the support of a lot of people. You mentioned that one of your major reasons for moving here were some of the implications of climate change in California agriculture. And so you moved here and now we're breathing in smoke from Canadian wildfires. So there's no safe place. Correct. So what's your personal doom meter on climate? Like, how long do we have? The doom meter. Wow. I want to hear yours. I can't give a number, but I will say, first of all, I appreciate your sort of realistic attitude. Not that I think we're doomed, but I appreciate the belief that we have to do things. We have to take action now and and it is bad. However, we're very pragmatic here. I would say at Sweet Farm, I think that's where we also differ a little bit as an organization. We do believe that there are changes that can be made and that there's real progress that can be made. However, you know, it might look a little different. What you said before about how we might have to do things a little bit differently than we thought we would or try new things, that's absolutely true. And I think in terms of my do meter, <laughs> I don't personally believe at this point that we can stop climate change. I don't think that's that's necessarily a thing. And I think generally Sweet Farm takes that approach. We're not trying to stop anything. We're trying to figure out how to move forward from where we are now in a way that is sustainable and can actually start healing the earth and make real change. There's no stopping it, but there's changing what we're doing. There's coming up with solutions. There's learning how to live with it and how to heal the planet and all of the creatures within it. In a way, we stay extremely positive, similar to uh, your outlook on this podcast. I love that about all of your conversations. Well, most of your conversations. I think it's maybe slid a little, but. (laughs) (laughs) But really, I think in the process of healing the planet and working towards that, there are things that we can do that can slow climate change and then help adapt. And over time, 
you know, there's this going theory that over time, all technology effectively becomes climate technology. You know, the automobile was developed to address a lot of issues, but the manure issue within the major cities, that was a major, major challenge that the automobile cleaned up effectively an environmental disaster. And then 100 20 years later, created its own, <laughs> right? So now we're cleaning that up with uh, EVs, for instance. Well, I, I would say I'm hopeful working with entrepreneurs, working with educators, and also inspiring people, everyone from a few years old up through CEOs and politicians, inspiring them to take action with whatever platform they have. If their platform is asking their family to have a more plant-forward diet, even to start, right? That's a very important change all the way up to uh, encouraging politicians to support programs, support alternative proteins. That whole range, I think it gives me hope to see that occurring more and more these days. Mm-hmm. And Maura is here with us. And I was like, if you have a question, just jump in. And I know she has one. So yeah, I have a question. Yeah. So you moved from near the center of Silicon Valley to here, and there's a large university with a state agriculture program at that university. So I'm wondering how have you integrated them and new thinkers and up and coming ag superstars? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So Sweet Farm is already partners with the Cornell Center of Excellence for Food and Agriculture. We do communicate very closely with their leaders across their agritech food ventures arm. We were just out there the other week meeting with their leadership team and we're sending entrepreneurs their way. They're sending entrepreneurs our way. Uh, It's really a collaborative approach. And Sweet Farm's sweet spot has always been pre-university field trials in a way. So a lot of the companies that are coming to us don't yet have the funding or the resources needed to even navigate tech transfer offices at universities or to pay for the greenhouse space because universities, they're less expensive than some other approaches, but they still do have a lot of overhead. So we're able to actually get them over that hump. They can then show their minimum viable product or their proof of concept raise the money, then go to the university. So we really view it as a stepping stone for a lot of these companies and it's complementary. I always focus on that complementary work. It takes all of us and all different approaches. We may have our own unique opinions about certain approaches, but I think it's important that we respect that those different approaches exist as well. So uh, in this instance, complementing the work of Cornell, absolutely. So switching gears a bit, I know you're also active in the alternative protein world, I think, as an investor. And there was some big news in that world with the approval of Upside and Good Meat. Can you give us an idea of where we are and where you believe we should be headed? Yeah. Cultivated meat, whether an individual thinks it is vegan or not vegan, that's an entirely different conversation and one that I don't think actually is necessarily the most relevant question. Billion percent agree. Yeah, right. These are products that are being developed for meat eaters, for people who don't opt for the black bean burger, which if it's on the menu, that is definitely what I'm going for. But I think there's a lot of progress that's quickly being made towards producing it, producing it FBS-free growth media. So that's fetal bovine serum. A lot of companies have already developed serum-free growth mediums. So I just want to put that out there that that development has already taken place, is already in practice for a lot of companies. With respect to the announcement from Upside and Good Meat, incredible progress made in a very short period of time. Back in 2012, the first cultivated burger cost about $300,000 yeah. to produce. And, and now we're in just a couple of tens of dollars. There's companies in Israel producing chicken, getting very close to cost comparable And then in last year, I actually was fortunate enough to try Good Meats cultivated chicken product over in Singapore. And, you know, among a lot of different companies, I've tried their products. And the way I describe them is they're unremarkable in the best possible way, (laughs) right? I don't eat meat, but I still remember what it tastes like and have memories myself, right? Food is like memories in a way. And it was unremarkable in the sense of I ate it and it just tasted like chicken. So I think that is right now, one of the biggest compliments you can actually pay to these companies. But again, it's not going to be for everyone. 
And I think we are getting close. A lot of these companies are paving the way for faster, more streamlined, and more effective processes. When I see the announcement, what I actually see is, yes, they're today's leaders, but it's really about paving the way so we can have hundreds or more of these kind of companies really addressing a lot of different aspects of the system. Definitely. I love that answer. We have been going for a while now. I feel like Marianne and I have enough questions for another few days of sitting here with you. So we're just going to move in if that's okay. (laughs) I saw the airstream outside. We'll be your latest rescued animals. But I do have just one more question before we get into bonus content, if you don't mind sticking with us for a few more minutes. So for people who are listening and who want to do more than just be vegan, maybe they want to go electric themselves but maybe they want to do more than that. Maybe they are struggling with despair, which is something we hear a lot. Where do you suggest people put their efforts? Ooh, I think an important thing. Okay, I'll start with my own experience, which is I already work in the space. I am doing my part. There's a lot of brain space already consumed with sort of the concepts and topics that we're discussing. I don't add more to that than I need to. I already know the work that I'm doing is making an impact. So I don't spend a ton of time at home watching videos from Kill Floors of Factory Farms or undercover things. I mean, really, I don't actually think that is necessarily doing a lot of additional good for me, right, in my realm. So I would suggest others... Positivity is infectious. I'll kind of like break that comment with positivity is infectious. And if you're already on this path, one of the best things that you can do is focus on the positives, focus on these hopeful developments and progress. Because then also when you have conversations with your friends, family, loved ones who you're encouraging to take their first step If you approach it from a positive standpoint, most times you have a lot better chance of making that impact a successful one. People want to join a winning team, a positive team. So I would encourage someone to maybe put down the phone, take a walk, and really just focus on the things that we can be hopeful about and then translate that, right? It's not just about hoping and wishing, right? It's taking that positivity and then putting it back into the world in a way that is directionally productive. That is so well said. And Shira, do you want to add to that? I share a similar view that if you are already making a large impact yourself and you know that, of course, there are so many other you know, small and large changes you can make to your daily life to make one. But I think even more than that, if you can inspire others at that point to make more positive choices, if you can, instead of being polarizing, if you can bring more people in, like Nate said, by doing so positively, that will make huge change by inspiring others to take your lead and follow that path towards making positive change. Yeah. And and I will caveat all of that with, it is important to have the work of the activists and the undercover kind of work. But when it comes to someone who is already in it themselves, like put the phone down. <laughs> And I will say that's part of how incredible this podcast you guys have is you are doing that. You're inspiring others. You're bringing people into the conversation. And that is huge impact. Thank you so much. You know, we have always said one of our things is in spite of, I'm sorry about the doom meter question, (laughs) but that hope is a strategy by which, I mean, exactly as you're saying, it doesn't mean that all you need is hope and that's going to fix things, but that hopefulness is a good strategy out in the world. That is a way you reach people and change people. Definitely. are you saying that? And how can people find out about you and support your efforts? Well, as our development and communications manager, let me tell you. We are online, of course. We have a website at uh, sweetfarm.org. Pretty easy to remember. There's a lot of information on there. If you'd like to visit us in person, we would love to see you. We have in-person tours throughout the week. Check our website. Check our social media. We are all over. The Sweet Farm is generally our username on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can see all of our incredible rescued animals on there, as well as a lot of information about events and programming. And we do have another program. If you're not local, you can check out our program, Goat to Meeting, which is a program that Sweet Farm created 
at the height of COVID. It was Sweet Farm's pivot into a post-COVID world. Basically, we could not do any of these things when lockdown was happening. So we started calling into corporate groups, private groups, public schools we were doing for free, and basically showing up with one of the goats, one of the cows, telling people a little bit about their story, all smiles, leaving people with a positive thing that they can do, done in a very, very hopeful manner. Since the start of that program, that was March 25th, 2020, we've done almost 9,000 of those programs with people all around the world, almost 400,000 people, 700 schools for free when teachers were having to teach from home. So if you're not local, you can go to our website, sweetfarm.org, and check out Goat to Meeting, book one for yourself, for your corporate group, and it does help support the proceeds all do go back to the animals and those that support them. I love that. Well, I hope to meet a couple of the animals before we get going. So thank you so much for letting us come here and for joining us today on our hen house and for all the absolutely incredible work that you're doing to change the world for animals. Thank you so much for having us and you both as well. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Social media has become such an important part of almost all of our lives. So please make our hen house part of that social media experience for you. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram. We try to post some news stories to help you keep up to date on what's happening in the world for animals. You can also find us online, of course, uh, on our website, ourhenhouse.org, or you can email us. If you have some concerns or questions or something you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, let us know. Info at ourhenhouse.org. Anxiety surprising. Our first story is from Jessica Scott Reed, one of our favorite reporters. She's actually going to be on the podcast soon. And this is on Sentient Media, which, you know, if you don't follow Sentient Media, you really need to because it really does keep you up to date on what's going on. And of course, Sentient Media is not the usual type of of outlet that we use on rising anxieties. But sometimes, like in plant-based news, they are reporting on other people's rising anxieties and I am lifting their reporting from them to tell you about it. And the title of Jessica's story here is The Backlash to Plant-Based Meat Has a Sneaky, If Not Surprising, Explanation. And this is something we really should all be thinking about because as we all know, as, uh, as Jessica points out here, Around 2020, plant-based meats were really, really cool. We weren't the only ones who thought they were cool. They were getting great press. Everybody was excited about them. Everybody, uh, as she says, vegans, flexitarians, and general foodies alike. We were all excited. Sales skyrocketed. Beyond Meat went public. And, you know, the, the stock was, they just raked in all sorts of money. More and more companies started coming into the space. You know, some of them... Actually, we're not that good, but that's inevitable. The Guardian declared plant-based meat mainstream. The planet, as she says, the animals and our arteries rejoiced. And now, what's happened? Uh, you know, the, here's an article from Bloomberg, she cites, fake meat was supposed to save the world. It became just another fad. Forbes said it was the plant-based fail. And the Guardian, which had, you know, written accolades about it, wrote an article about why plant-based meats sizzle fizzled. You know, the stock went down impossible, which has not gone public. Uh, so we don't know how it's doing and it claims to be doing well, but you know, they let some people go and things just looked bad. Is it really that everybody just started not liking it anymore? Because, you know, if you've, if you've eaten these products, you probably know that they're pretty delicious. <laughs> like, like, I can't swear they taste like me because it's a long time since I've tasted a dead animal, but they seem to, just because of what really happened here, take a wild guess. And of course, it's just the hype. All of the articles examining it, as she said, point to one glaring common crux. Consumers finally figured out that burgers made of beans or peas have to be processed in order to meet the meaty mark. Now, how did they find that out? How did they suddenly come to realize that these were quote-unquote processed foods? And how did they come to think that that really meant that they should not eat them? It was almost, she says, as if the meat industry orchestrated the whole thing itself. It did. Of course it did. 
And, you know, I mean, we know some of this. Uh, there were full page ads in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal claiming, quote unquote, fake meats are full of real chemicals. I didn't know about this. There was a TV ad broadcast to select markets during the 2020 Super Bowl. Uh, you know, I don't follow sports much. <laughs> This was a $5 million commercial and it featured a young girl in a spelling bee asked to spell methyl cellulose. When she requested a definition, the girl is told that it's a, it is a chemical laxative also used in synthetic meat. You know, the fix was in, the, the hype was on, and it's mostly run by the Center for Consumer Freedom, the notorious Rick Berman, uh, but not just there. And, you know, the meat industry, I'm sure, was was chiming in, though, you know, they have kind of mixed motives here because certain aspects of the meat industry are were getting into these foods. Other aspects were not. Unilever, you know, huge, huge food company, their future health and wellness director, Amelia Jarman, uh, wasn't really pleased about all of this because they are they are really investing in these products. Quote, the label ultra-processed is a general term with no real classification. As a nutrition scientist, I have one view. Processing per se isn't bad. What is bad is food that has no nutritional value. And as Jessica adds in the case of red meat, food that raises your risk of several chronic diseases. This word processing has been misused. Uh, you know, it's not that, that whole foods aren't super healthy and shouldn't be something that we should be targeting. But just because something is processed, what does that mean? Cooking is a process. There's lots of processes that don't uh, cause harm. And the article also points out this the notorious ingredient in methyl cellulose is a compound derived from plant fibers that is used to bind or thicken all kinds of foods like bread, cake, ice cream, and chocolate. It's not scary. But, you know, like people didn't stop eating all these other foods. They didn't start worrying about all of the ingredients on everything else they're buying at the supermarket. They just got targeted to look at what's going on in these meatless burgers. You know, this was to some extent due to center consumer freedom. But, you know, not just. Uh, it's it's a massive movement, uh, as she points out, to keep animal meat on our tables and plant-based meat back in the fads of the pandemic. Uh, lots of expensive lobbyists, you know, trying to link uh, plant-based meat to being un-American, being unmasculine, all of the old tropes. And as she concludes, it is a heavy marketing tactic used to keep consumers from coming upon the meat industry's own bloody secret that there's a process required to turn animals into meat too, and it's much worse. Well, ain't that the truth? And, you know, that's what, you know, as you know, if you listen to this regularly, that's what I'm always saying. Not exactly that. It's not even just the slaughter process. It's that meat itself is a processed food because it's taking vegetables and plant-based foods and processing them through an animal's body and adding a lot of really, really unhealthy ingredients like like the fat and the, uh, and the cholesterol. Uh, all right, I'll stop. Great article. Highly recommend it. And I, as I said, I highly recommend reading sentient media regularly. I don't recommend eating pork business uh, regularly, but I do have a column to talk about from pork business. Prop 12 exacerbates tough economic time for pig farmers. You know, this is their, their new line, trying to get rid of Prop 12 and trying to get Congress to vitiate it. I'm just looking at this picture and it's just so creepy like they put these pictures in all the time, especially pig farmers. All right, there's this big, big guy and he's standing in the middle of what is obviously just a factory. I mean, it look, you know, it's like all bars and wires and he's holding this tiny little piglet uh, and looking at the piglet as if he cares about the piglet and the piglet looks just scared and sick and pathetic. They love that picture with the piglet. All right, this is by Jennifer Scheich. She starts out by talking about Prop 12, as I mentioned, that it creates significant challenges and market uncertainty for pig farmers across the country and has far-reaching implications beyond the pork industry. And this is, she's quoting from the National Pork Producers Council, uh, third quarter pork industry economic update in which Scott Hayes, the president of NPPC and a pork producer from Missouri, they like to call themselves pork producers, I guess, now instead of pig farmers, the U.S. pork industry is incredibly important not only to agriculture, but to the entire U.S. economy. No, it isn't, Scott. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, but it really, really isn't. We have to eat. Food is important to the economy, but pork, not so much. And then he goes on to talk about, uh, you know, the producers are facing unprecedented economic environment caused by dynamic market conditions and exacerbated further by California Prop 12. The article goes on to outline this. And the reason I'm highlighting this story is because it's like what this story is really saying is that the pork industry, pork is not selling that well. And they want to blame that on Prop 12, but it doesn't have anything to do with Prop 12. It's just that the hog prices have dropped. People are not willing to spend as much as they did last year on pork, which has nothing to do with Prop 12, which hasn't gone into effect. So, you know, it's just like they, they'll they point to anything to try to get the government, to get Congress to take Prop 12 out as of this as a thorn in their side. But there's really, n their, their real problem here is their product isn't selling as well. You know, that's for a number of reasons. I'd love to think it was because people, you know, were upset about it, but probably not. It's probably about inflation and, and other things. Well, actually, it wouldn't be inflation either because the price, well, people just don't have as much money, but the prices have dropped. This article points out that negotiated hog prices have increased from where they were, but are still $20 below where they were last year at this time. And production costs are higher. Well, it doesn't matter what production costs are higher if you're not selling for even, well, I guess it doesn't matter, but the really, really important point is that you can't sell your product for as much as you were last year, which means that the, it, people don't want it. That's their problem. People don't want their product or are not willing to pay much for it. And so they're really, really scared about Prop 12 spreading and and there being some requirement in the world and from consumers that they actually have to be not quite as cruel to their pigs. Like a bad sci-fi movie, Here Comes Fake Meat. This is from our beloved Amanda Radke, who now has her own site. She used to be on beef.com, but now she's on amandaradke.com. Not sure what that development means. And she writes a lot. Uh, is there anything more iconic, she begins, more American than a family grilling in the backyard during the summer months? Well, I have no problem with that. Then she talks about ribeyes sizzling over the flames. Ick. Kids running through the sprinkler, watermelon slices, corn on the cob, ice cold lemonade, music playing on the patio, memories being made. Well, all of those things were good, except for the ribeye. What are, is a ribeye anyway? I don't even know. But she wants us to picture that same scene without the steak. I say, yeah, sounds delightful. I love all of those things, except the steak. Does it have the same feel? She asks, no, frankly, it doesn't. I totally agree, Amanda. Um, of course, she's trying to make the point that it just ain't no good without the dead animal. And beef is king. That's what she has to say. It just is. So she's really, really nervous about how the world is going to be ruined by the introduction of uh, replacement meat. And this is kind of counter to the article <laughs> we just heard about how these companies aren't doing well. Of course, that article is true. But, you know, the industry is still really nervous about it. It may be true for the moment, but they don't think it's going to stay true. And they realize they still have to fight it. And here's one reason. According to Amanda, if governments here and around the world have their way, we won't have beef on the dinner plate at all. The World Economic Forum has stated you will be eating replacement meat within 20 years. She emphasizes the will. I bet they really said you will be eating. <laughs> Emphasize it. She wants to make it sound like it's a mandate. You know, they're not going to make you eat anything. They're just observing the fact that the world cannot sustain the beef industry anymore. It's got to go. But like, hopefully this decision has been made. The fix is in. The market forces are going to be manipulated and, and this is going to end up on people's table. Because according to the World Economic Forum, with the large-scale livestock industry now viewed as an unnecessary evil and the advantages of novel vegan meat replacements and cultured meat becoming better known, it's only a matter of time before they capture a substantial share of the market. Well, from your quotes, Amanda, <laughs> to whoever's ear has to be reached in order to make this happen. I don't know whether it's God or whether it's 
whether it's governments or whoever it is. Let's hope it happens fast. And she points out that meatpacking companies are also investing. This is what I was mentioning before, which is upsetting to people like Amanda, who's on the other side of it. See, like the companies, the big companies, they just want to make money. They just want to sell food. If it's food from dead animals, they're fine with that. They don't care. But if it's food from not dead animals, or, or not, by which I don't mean live animals, but if it's food from plants or from the lab or from wherever, they don't care about it either as long as they're making money. But ranchers like Amanda, they're screwed. Yay. Uh, she points out to some of these foods that she thinks are horrifying. Scientists have invented a soybean that tastes like pork. <laughs> I hope that's true. <laughs> that is... That is one I haven't heard before. She also talks about the the restaurant in San Francisco where cell-based chicken uh, or cultivated chicken is being sold, you know, which most of us already know about. There's a company in the UK that's making cultivated Wagyu beef burgers. That's apparently, you know, some poor cows or Wagyu. They're, I think it's a Japanese type of cow that are particularly fatty and, and overgrown. Unbelievably. Unbelievably horrible. She, but she wants us to know that as for me and my house, which is on a on a, <laughs> a ranch where they raise cows, I might add. As for me and my house, we will not be consuming products with bioengineered ingredients on the label. I bet you will. I bet you will. You know, like as long as it's not meat, I bet you're not looking at that label any more carefully than the rest of us. And what does bioengineered mean anyway? We will not be eating foods that are cultivated in a lab. Well, either will I, because, you know, these foods were invented in a lab, but they're not going to be produced in labs. We won't be sacrificing our health and wellness in the name of having an efficient food system. Hmm, that's interesting. Is she now conceding that that it would be more efficient to, to have uh, cultivated meats? Because it obviously would be. We won't be throwing the independent farmer and rancher under the bus in the name of quote, progress. Wait a second. Wait a second. Like, are we really supposed to be running the entire food system for you, the independent farmer and rancher? Grow plants. Grow plants. We love farmers. Amanda concludes, I'm going to hang on to the American dream. Oh, God. Raising my kids on the land, prioritizing family dinners, and making sure there is real meat, dairy, and eggs at the center of our plates. Well, good for you, Amanda. The rest of us really don't have to sacrifice the earth just to support you. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one session with me, Jasmine, and you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic our Hen House Brass Pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. <laughs>